Well, today we're beginning to look at the temptation of Jesus as we find it lined out in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. You know, it seems in Christian life that after the blessing often comes a battle. After the mountaintop comes a valley. After feeling so close to God, there comes a time when you feel so very far away from God. The greatest temptations follow the greatest victories, it seems. The greatest trials often follow the biggest triumphs. Remember Elijah in the Old Testament? He went to Mount Carmel to have a contest between him and the 40 prophets of Baal as to whose God was really God. And if you've read the story in 1 Kings, the 18th chapter, you remember that it was a, a great victory and a tremendous display of the power of the one true God. And Elijah was so excited that on his way back to town, he was uh, able to outrun a chariot being pulled by horses who were galloping. But then only one chapter later, in 1 Kings 19, we see Elijah as low as he has ever been in his life. He's hiding out in the desert, wishing that he could die. And after the blessing, you see, the battle came. After the mountaintop comes the valley. After the victory comes the test. And we see this happen to Jesus in Luke, the fourth chapter. The first four chapters of the Gospel of Luke are all about Jesus' preparation for ministry. In chapter 2, we saw his birth and preparation in childhood. In chapter 3, we see his uh, preparation through the ministry of John the Baptist and being baptized and his baptism was a mountaintop. He came up out of the water after being baptized by John and God thundered out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Now, how's that for a mountaintop experience? But Luke 4 immediately begins with a valley. Jesus goes from the heights to the depths, from the blessing to the battle. Luke 4 and 4, 1 and 2 set the scene as Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He's been baptized by John in the river. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him like a dove. And now he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And that means he's empowered and led by the Holy Spirit of God. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Leads him into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness was a part of Judea about 35 miles long, 15 miles wide. It was called Jeshimon, which meant the devastation. It sounds just awful. 
It says that the hills there are like dust heaps and the limestone looks blistered and peeling. The rocks are bare and jagged. It was in this terrible, devastated place that Jesus was tempted. He was definitely in the wilderness. I think all of us have experienced such times in the wilderness in our own lives. In fact, you may be going through one now. One of those times when you feel like you've just been set aside by God. Maybe you, you feel like there's some mighty work or some major work or something that you're supposed to be doing for God. And yet it's like he has just set you aside and you're wondering what's going on. Well, listen, this is what's going on. You Sometimes your time in the wilderness can last a day or two, sometimes a month or more. Sometimes it can last for years. There are different kinds of wildernesses. As an example of someone who uh, has been in a wilderness time, look at Apostle Paul. He received a revelation from God. He met Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord and Savior of the world on the road to Damascus. And he believed in Jesus for eternal life. And according to Acts 9.20 following, uh, he uh, tried to start a ministry to his Jewish brethren. And uh, it says that uh, he was winning arguments and debates with them there in Damascus. He'd studied well. He knew his Bible. But all that happened was that he got, he almost got killed. So he went to Jerusalem and the apostles there wouldn't trust him. But he went out and again tried to start a ministry to the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem. But again, the only thing that happened was that he kept making people mad. It seemed like nothing was really going quite right for Paul. And so finally, the apostles decided they needed to get him out of the way. And so they sent him off to Tarsus. Now, notice this. It's after, I'd never noticed this before. It was after the apostles sent Paul off to Tarsus that the church began to prosper in Jerusalem. Boy, isn't that a downer? You leave and things get better. I mean, that, wow. So you can imagine how Paul is feeling whenever he's in Tarsus and he gets the word back as to how well things are now going in Jerusalem. Jesus told him on the road to Damascus that he's going to be used greatly by God. But every time Paul tried to be used by God, all he did was cause problems. And so he was sent away. And so what did Paul do? We need to take heed. Listen, this is what he did. He quietly served. He just quietly served in a church in the boondocks of Tarsus. For 14 years, he was there. He was unknown. He was unrecognized. People forgot about him. He probably began to think that God had forgotten about him too. But God had not forgotten. God sent Paul to Tarsus, I'm convinced, to teach him humility. 
to teach him how to get victory over his temptation of pride. That is why he can write in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, that knowledge puffs up. In Damascus and Jerusalem, he had all the knowledge and he had an assurance that he was going to be used by God, but he had not learned love. His knowledge made him proud, but God wanted him to also be loving. Now, Paul would never, ever say that knowledge is unimportant. His writings and letters clearly indicate that we should all get as much knowledge, especially of God's word, as we can. But arrogant knowledge, prideful knowledge, knowledge without love is a dangerous thing. And so God put Paul on the back burner for 17 years in order to teach Paul how to speak the truth in love. And when after 17 years, Paul had learned this lesson in the wilderness of Arabia and the backwaters of Tarsus, God said to Paul, okay, now it's time. And Paul did turn the world upside down for God. But you see, even Paul had to spend time in the wilderness learning to overcome temptation. This is similar to what happens to Jesus here. He has prepared himself for ministry. And in the final step for that, he's learning how to deal with temptation. You see, he had a divine appointment with Satan himself there in the wilderness. And it doesn't just say that after the 40 days he was tempted. Satan was tempting him all during the 40 days. But then he really comes on strong when Jesus is physically at his weakness at the end of that 40 days when he's hungry. That's whenever the devil turns up the fire. Spending time in the wilderness and standing on the word of God against the devil, that was important because just imagine after going through that, after facing that, scribes, Pharisees, grumbling, mumbling people, they were nothing to facing Satan himself. When Jesus came out victorious, he was ready to take on the world. He was in the wilderness for 40 days. His 40 days, just like Moses' 40 days on Mount Sinai or Elijah's 40-day journey to Mount Horeb, you could even equate Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness with Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. In fact, there are many similarities between Israel's early history and Jesus' first 30 years. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Abraham spent time in the promised land and then in a time of famine moved to Egypt. And similarly, uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and when his life was threatened by Herod, they moved to Egypt. And after quite a while in Egypt, the Israelites came back to Canaan. But before they entered, they crossed through the Red Sea and spent 40 years in the desert. So also with Jesus, 
He grew up, was baptized in the Jordan River, and before he could begin his ministry, he spends 40 days in the wilderness. And just as the Israelites were tempted in the wilderness, so Jesus is tempted. This is uh, what I, what we see next in Luke 4, 2. It says he was severely tempted by the devil. We see in Luke 4, 1 through 13, that Jesus was tempted in three ways. And I want us to take note of this and examine your own life as we go through this. Three ways which are similar to the ways the Israelites were tempted in the wilderness and the same way that Adam and Eve were tempted in the Garden of Eden. And uh, they're similar to the way all of us are tempted today. We see this same pattern Again, all the way through Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we learn something. We see Satan's temptations and tactics are very simple if we just see them. First of all, three different ways that he tempts people. You see, Satan is not really creative. This is one of the things that I've noticed. He is not. Even the way he attacks us and it affects us is not creative. Uh, whenever I'm in, in alcohol and drug abuse counseling, one of the things that you see is that people get caught in a circle. They get caught actually a downward circle. And it's a destructive, self-destructive circle. And he, Satan will keep you in a trap and just running around in circles. And the circle, that downward spiral, is so predictable that you can outline it. And people have written book after book after book about all the stages. It just follows the human uh, mind and heart. Our human heart is the same, and we follow the same pattern over and over and over again. Now then, this is the wonderful thing. Whenever we come to know the Lord and we give all of our sin over to Him and receive His forgiveness, all of a sudden, we don't have to run around in circles anymore. He'll take us off on a straight line. And then creative things can happen. And uh, then you can help other people out of that pit that they have dug for themselves by running around in circles for so long. And so uh, anyway, just want you to be aware that there's just, he's not really creative. He has only three basic temptations. Have you ever noticed that? If you're going to be tempted by Satan, it's going to be in one of three ways. And they're summarized in 1 John 2.16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the ways that he tempts people. No matter what temptation you're dealing with in your life, it falls in one of these three categories. Do you see how limited his repertoire is? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look at Eve. In Genesis 3, 6, we see Satan use these same three things, these three temptations for Eve. First, she saw that the tree 
was good for food. That's lust of the flesh. Then she saw that it was pleasing to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. And then lastly, that it was desirable to make one wise. Not just intelligent, but that could be like God. That's the pride of life. Similarly, Jesus was tempted in three different ways. The same three ways. Satan wanted Jesus to turn stones into bread. That's the lust of the flesh. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world, the lust of the eyes, and tempted Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple in order to easily declare himself as the Messiah and prove that God was working in him, the pride of life. Those are his only three ways to tempt us. And if you find yourself being tempted, it's going to be in one of those three ways. And he has only one tactic, only one tactic. If you'll be honest with yourself, you'll see this tactic being used on you. Satan's only tactic in these three categories of temptation is to raise doubt in our minds about the word of God. That's what it's all about. That's the battle that's going on in our denomination as a whole, folks. The Satan is trying to cast doubt in people's minds about the word of God. That's what it's all about. Here's how he does it. He twists the word. He makes subtle changes to the word of God. He adds to the word of God or subtracts from the word of God. He rips verses out of context from the word of God. All of Satan's temptations revolve around misusing and abusing God's word. That is how he tempted Eve in Genesis, the third chapter. It's the way he tempted the Israelites in the wilderness, the way he tempted the kings of Israel, the way he tempts Jesus here. And it is the way he will tempt you. He twists the word of God. He raises doubt about what God has said. Didn't God say this is why it's so vitally important to know the Bible, to read it, read it. Don't just talk to other people about it. Read it. Don't just hear me up here spouting off. Read God's word. Measure what I say and other pastors say against the word of God. That's why it's so important to study his word, the Bible, daily, to attend a church where God's word is faithfully taught from the pulpit and to attend Bible studies and learn good Bible study ways. If you don't know the word of God, you don't know how to correctly handle the word of God. You will easily fall prey to the devil. Because I guarantee you, he is a student of the word. He knows the word. Not so that he can obey it, but so he can twist it. The word of God is the sword of the spirit, which is used to stand against the devil. 
And if you are not proficient with the word of God, Satan will use his twisted version of God's word against you. Eve was ignorant of the word of God. And so she was deceived and she fell into sin. Jesus is the master swordsman with the word of God. And that is one of the reasons he was able to fend off the devil when he attacked. We will see this as we go through each temptation. And next week, we're going to go through the three temptations of Jesus more uh, clearly and more thoroughly. So Satan has only three temptations and one tactic. And if you're going to keep from falling into temptation, you need to know God's word. John Wesley, founder of our denomination, this was so important to him. These are his words. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge, knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. Those are John Wesley's words. Two words I want to stay with you this coming week wilderness and word wilderness and word some of you are in the wilderness right now and you may have even wondered if god had just forgotten about you you're reminded this morning you're in the wilderness to prepare you for what lies ahead don't give up hang in there hang in there you're just getting ready and in your wilderness Serve and read the word of God. Prepare yourself for what's to come. And then besides wilderness, the word, word, God's word. Uh, let's see. Sean Kierkegaard said something so interesting. He said, the Bible is very easy to understand. Now, so many people say, well, I just don't understand the Bible, you know. Sean Kierkegaard says it's very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. I encourage you in the week ahead to take away all your fear, all your presuppositions, all your fake, I just can't understand it type stuff, cast all that aside and embrace what he says to you through his word. It was Mark Twain that said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's those parts I understand full well. And if you understand what God is saying, and it troubles you, then that's your growing edge. And he's calling you to grow this week in the name of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen.